0: Now, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. We continue in our journey through the book of Revelation, and we are in the home stretch about another, I don't know, six or seven sermons, and we'll be through the rest of this book. And we are getting into the home stretch of the story of the book of Revelation as well. Um, we're going to be looking now this evening at chapter 16, the seven bowls of wrath. And as you have been noticing, we have been seeing reiterations over and over again of this same story of the great struggle between the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan and the forces of evil. And there has been a recapitulation of these over and over again. And once we get past this last recapitulation in chapter 16, we'll then see it work itself out in much greater detail in the destruction of Babylon and the establishment of the new city. But for now, let's look at chapter 16. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. His word is inerrant. His word is sufficient, and his word is authoritative. Revelation 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that was in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became like blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. <coughs> for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as has never been seen since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's ask for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us through your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would remind us that you are sovereign and you are in control. Even when the world seems to be spinning out of control, that you, O Lord, know all things. You, O Lord, are never surprised. We ask that you would teach us now from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Another cycle of seven. We've seen seven trumpets. We've seen seven churches. We've seen now seven bowls, seven bowls of wrath. We've seen seven seals. And again, this book of Revelation is designed to describe for us the great battle that is going on. The great battle and a way to give us encouragement to know that God is in charge of this battle. And so, in a, in a cyclical way, but in a way in which reveals more and more every time it comes out, John is again describing for us this battle and how the Lord Himself will be victorious. And here we have the balls of His wrath being poured out on His enemies. And they are a series of plagues. They're very interesting. Some of them should have sounded very familiar. If you've ever done any study in Exodus, there are plagues that sound very reminiscent of those that were upon Egypt. But there are others that are different as well. But the one thing that is constant is they describe the wrath of God being poured out on those who have rebelled against Him. If we think about these plagues in the first place, we see that there are seven, and they are divided by this interlude into a first set of three, a second set of three, and then the last. And the first of this first set of three is a plague of sores. reminds us of the plague of boils that was the sixth plague in Egypt. And the first bowl of wrath here starts out upon the earth. And I think it is significant that it affects those who are living upon the earth. It affects people where they work, where they live, where they conduct themselves. And all of life is made more difficult by their opposition to God. Now, this is true in a metaphorical way. We know, as those who seek to follow the Lord and understand from His Word, that everything is more difficult when we are in rebellion against God. Marriage is more difficult. Raising children is more difficult. Finding joy in our work is more difficult. Dealing with others who are unjust to us is more difficult. And this is the case that is found by those who have worshipped the beast. Everything in their life is now made more difficult by these painful, visible sores. It is a vivid reminder of their rebellion against God. It's so vivid and visible a reminder that 40 years after the sixth plague in Egypt, our Lord God in Deuteronomy 28 described for Israel the punishment for failing to obey Him and keep covenant, for wandering from Him and following other gods. And that visible reminder was to be sores and boils like were found in Egypt. An entire generation had gone by, and you can imagine fathers telling their children, grandfathers telling their grandchildren about how horrible this was. This is visited upon those who have taken the mark of the beast. And as we will see in further bowls to come, it does not cause any change. It doesn't cause them to repent. They don't get the picture. The second plague that we see is the sea turning to blood. And this sounds like the first plague in Egypt. But that is identical to this third plague here. There is a third plague in which the rivers of water turn into blood. So what is going on like this? Well, this second bowl of wrath is like <coughs> excuse me, the second trumpet in which the seas were harmed. But here it is a complete devastation. You'll recall previously it was just a third of the seas were destroyed. A third of the ships were destroyed. But you see, now we see the wrath of God moving to the point where there is no holding back at all. This is the end of all things. God will set all things to right. And so there is complete devastation in its wake. This is, in a very real sense, a judgment upon the sea itself. You remember what the sea symbolizes. The sea is an area of chaos, of danger, of rebellion. There's a reason why the Israelites were not a seafaring nation. They were afraid of the sea and what it seemed to them. And we saw this earlier where the great beast rose up out of the sea to begin his rebellion against God. And so here now God places it on the sea itself. And it's interesting that in the new heavens and the new earth, we do not see a sea. We see something that looks like a sea of glass, but there is no area of waves of tumult. There are no depths that cannot be measured. You see, all of chaos, all of rebellion will be done away with. In this third plague, it is similar, but there is a continued ratcheting up of these plagues. Because now, not only is the water destroyed, but it is a specific kind of water. It's a water that's needed for life, isn't it? How much damage has been done in this state by the drought in the last few months? How many things have happened? So many bad things happened, things that we wouldn't have even have expected. I wouldn't have. I would not have thought that one of the consequences of a drought, of not having proper water, would be water pipes bursting in places. I guess that's because I'm not mechanical. But I would think of dryness, I would think of plants dying, but the devastation is everywhere. We need living water to live. But here, God has said, I will take that away from you as well. God is slowly, inexorably punishing, judging, casting judgment upon those who rebel against Him, trying to provide an opportunity for repentance, and once again, we see none. And then there is this short interlude, An interlude that immediately describes for us that what is going on here is just and right and true. There is no doubt that what God is doing is right. Now, we need this reminder, don't we? Because as we see things around us, we wonder either whether God is in control or whether God is good. When we see hurricanes, tornadoes, rainstorms, Wildfires, earthquakes, devastation. We wonder, couldn't God either keep control of this, or, or couldn't He, couldn't He have done something different? Why is God seeking to bring about this death and destruction? And you see, that thought might go through our minds here, but once again, right away, the angels come out and they say, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. And the language here is very interesting. The word that is used for holy here is not the normal word. The normal word that is used for holy is hagios. We get hagioph hagi hagiography. I can't even say it. It's like biography but hagiography. Hegi- it's where you play someone up like they're a saint. This word is a word that refers not to holiness of purity, but of holiness of covenant faithfulness. So it's not that God is somewhere up there, holy, different and separate from us, which is the normal word for holiness. No, God is with us and He is faithful and just and He is keeping faithfulness with His people covenantally. These judgments are an assurance to us. God is in control. That God seeks to defend His people. That God will appear at last. And we see this in this phrase after, O Holy One, who is and who was. Now, does that strike you as a bit odd? Have we seen that phrase before? We have, but don't we see it this way? Who is and who was... And who is to come. And we actually see it earlier there in the book of Revelation. But in my Bible, that's not there. I trust it's not in yours either. And so, what's missing there? I think what's missing there is intentional. Because you see, the Lord is the one who is and who was, but He is not the one who is to come because He is come now. He has come now to be with His people, to visit judgment upon His enemies. The Lord God is not forever future or distant. There is a day when He will come and set all things to right. And He will wipe away every tear. And He will heal every sickness. And He will restore every relationship. And He will bring His people and gather them to Himself that they may be a family of God and worship Him for eternity. It's interesting how we could find comfort in boils and blood. But this is just the first portion of the plagues. Then there is a second portion. Very quickly, we see that there is a sun that scorches with fierce heat. There is no counterpart to this in Egypt. And this is, I think, a reversing of common grace. How do we define common grace? Biblically. We say, well, the Lord sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Now, what's happening here? What's happening here is the sun is scorching. But there's something interesting. Verse 9 says that they were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Now, turn back with me just a little bit to chapter 7, verse 16, this is when the great multitude is in heaven and they're before the throne of God and it is described how they will be delivered and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, the sun shall not, what, strike them, nor any scorching heat. You see, this sun with its scorching heat does not strike those who are sealed with the blood of the Lamb. It strikes those who are sealed with a false mark, a mark of the beast. God is withdrawing His common grace to the just and the unjust. And He is protecting His people. And once again, He is showing those who are in rebellion against Him that there is no hope apart from God. But the end of verse 9 is too often the sad testimony of the Scriptures. They did not repent and give Him glory. And so a fifth plague comes upon them, a plague of darkness, again reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. It comes right on the throne of the beast. God comes right into His kingdom and strikes Him with darkness and helplessness. An image that God is in complete control and that the kingdom of Satan cannot stand against Him. You know, it is... It is a troubling difficulty of our culture, which goes back far and far, that sees the Lord and Satan as sort of twins who fight against each other. Who, it comes in any story in which someone, quote, sells their soul to the devil. That somehow God and the devil are equal partners. And the devil actually has an advantage because he cheats. And God doesn't. And somehow God is is under the thumb of of Satan. But this is not the biblical truth. When God sees the kingdom of Satan, He strikes it with darkness and it is nothing. He's in complete control. You see, this darkness is so black and so thick that it doesn't even serve the purpose that darkness does in our world, right? Right? Our Lord Jesus told us that men love darkness because why? Their deeds are evil. But here, there's not even a covering for evil deeds. All they can do is gnash their teeth, grind their tongue, and be miserable. And yet still, in verse 11, they do not repent of their deeds. The sixth plague happens when the great Euphrates River is dried up. As a great battle is prepared, there will be a battle, a battle unlike any other. A battle so unlike any other that we use this phrase of this battle. We speak about Armageddon. And we use it to describe any great and complete destruction. And this is a place that is describing the battle of Israel. See, in the Hebrew, This transliterated word, that means when we have a word that doesn't have a translation, we just take the letters and we make it an English word. This actual Hebrew word means the mountain of Megiddo. The har part is Hebrew for mountain. This is a place that is near Mount Carmel. It's a place where many great battles were fought. It's the place where Deborah and Barak fought Those who were in Canaan. It's where Saul was defeated at Gilboa. It's where Josiah the king was defeated and killed by Pharaoh Nico. It's where Elijah fought the prophets of Baal and Jezebel. This is a place that is known for being the place where God meets His enemies in battle. And this is the last iteration of this battle. We'll see more of it in weeks to come. But this great battle is to come. All of the enemies of God are to be assembled together that the Lord can gain final victory. And again, you see, the lies are still believed. They are still willing to rebel against God. The kings are gathered up by the lying beast, the false prophet. They are gathered up for a defeat to come. Then there is a seventh and last plague. A plague of an earthquake. But it's interesting that it begins with an ending. The plague begins with, it is done. And there is an earthquake with thunder and lightning. It's it's really a repeat of what happens on Mount Sinai itself. There is destruction in the earth The city is destroyed. The people are dismayed. And this is the destruction of the world system that is against God. We will see this in chapter 17, chapter 18, and 19. The destruction of Babylon. The city system, the secular system of the world that rebels against God. The wrath of God is being fulfilled and built up Babylon will drink that cup to the full. See that in verse 19? And there is no place to hide. Look at verse 20. The islands go away. When was the last time you saw an island move? There are no mountains anymore. There's no safety to be found. Big, huge hailstones come out of the sky. Nothing can be stopped. These are the plagues that come down from the Lord. Well, who are the recipients of this judgment? There are three, briefly. First, we see that there are those who bear the mark of the beast. That first plague comes upon those who have the mark of the beast, verse 2, and worship its image. The first cause of all of these plagues, the first cause of every problem on earth is idolatry. Every sin begins with idolatry. Adultery. Theft, lying, hurting others, dishonoring others. It all begins when we think that we are God and we can do as we wish. You see, that is the beginning here of sin and of judgment. And all of these judgments come upon those who are caught in idolatry and rebellion and there is no repentance A second group who receive this judgment are the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And this shows once again to us that God is sovereign. That God is in control. That no, there is no enemy force that can stand against Him. And yet, in the midst of this, there is no repentance to be found. Look at verse 13. Out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet come unclean spirits to gather up the kings for a last great battle against God. All of the stops are being drawn out. Satan himself, the satanic political realm, the satanic religious realm, all of them are gathered together to try and defeat the Lord God. The third and final recipient of judgment is Babylon itself, as we see here in verse 19. It reminds us that this battle that is going on, this judgment, is cosmic, it is complete. This actually takes us back, way back in our Bibles. What was the very beginning of organized rebellion against God? Now, there was rebellion in the garden by Adam and Eve. There was rebellion by Cain and his progeny. But what is the symbol in Genesis of shaking the fist against God, of seeking to lift ourselves up against God, but the Tower of which is exactly what Babylon is. the Same location, same word. It's no coincidence that Babylon is used to describe here the entirety of the system that seeks to place itself against God because it's the same as what happened in Genesis 11. You see, man is ever seeking to lift himself up against God. It's all about pride. Now this is something that we can stop and take a moment and take inventory ourselves of. It's easy to look here and to to say, we're not idolaters, we don't have the mark of the beast, we don't seek to rebel against God, we are sealed by the blood of the Lamb. But also, if we're honest with ourselves, there is a pride that wells up in us. There is something in us that seeks to enjoy a little too much when others think well of us. To remind others how good we are. To remind others how strong our faith is. And if we're not careful to even be tempted to think that God looks upon us with a special kind of favor because of who we are. This is a temptation we must face square on and reject and know that our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our only plea is His blood. We have no safety apart from Him. We have no worth apart from His worth and His work. We must seek to reject at all times the Babylon, the Babel that would rise up in our hearts. Well, finally, in conclusion, what does this text of bowls of wrath teach us? I think it teaches us three things that we can think about this week. The first is that the story of our redemption is one of war and hostility. Now that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? we think about redemption, we think about Jesus, we think about the Prince of Peace. We think about the babe in the manger. We think about how the Lord makes peace. With us through the blood of Christ. But really the story of our redemption is the story of God winning the war of recreating the earth. It is a story of war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there is hostility. And that hostility will end when our redemption is completed. It is God's hostility. Evil must be faced in the world. Christian, never be ashamed to stand up to the face of evil and say, no. You don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be weak. When someone says to you, you know, I think it could be a good thing for some people to abort their children. You say, no, it's not. Well, I can understand why somebody would cheat on his wife. No, I can't. It's wrong. That doesn't mean we have to condemn everyone. We can understand why people would do very wrong things. But we never understand how things that are wrong become right. There's a, a difference there. We have to understand too that this war, this hostility, we face it not just as those who are in combat, but we face it with a song of victory in our mouths. A song of triumph for Jesus has won. We don't need to worry about the outcome. Secondly, we need to understand that there is a continuing tension in the world. As we look at this text, I think we must admit that the world is not getting progressively better. There will not be a point when the world reaches a golden age. This is sort of what I call Star Trek theology. You know, it's in the background of Star Trek One of the officers will say, well, you remember when we defeated world hunger in the year whatever? And you remember how we conquered all forms of mental illness? And they bring out all of these things. And then I wonder what happens as they go off into space and they have hostility and hatred and theft. They think they've defeated sin, but they haven't. You see, we should not view the world that way. But the second way we should not view the world is the world is not progressively getting worse all the time. The world is a world of wheat and tares. It is always a world in which the Lord is gathering together His people and Satan is seeking to sift like wheat. And there will come a day, a final day, a day in the Lord in which He will separate out the wheat and the tares. But until then, we are called to persevere To persevere for the Lord. Thirdly and finally, we need to remember in this that there is hope. It's stuck here in the middle of this text, but we can find it, I think, perhaps a bit more easily because it's in parentheses. In the midst of all these woes, in the midst of all this destruction and earthquakes and hail and fire and do you see it in verse 15? Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is the third of seven blessings in the book of Revelation. We are blessed because the Lord has blessed us. And we are called to be vigilant and awake because the Lord has blessed us. That is our call as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. To stand for truth, to wait for our Lord to return, and to seek that reward that He will bring in His wake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have given to us this book, this book of revelation that we might know the end and know that You win, O Lord. Lord, we ask that You would remind us of this as we go through the daily struggles as we are put upon, as we see injustice, as we see sickness and even death, that we would know, O Lord, that You are in control and that You are preparing for us a place, a place for those who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who rest upon Him and all that He has done. We ask, Lord, that You would remind us of this even this week, that we might go about Spreading the good news of your kingdom. Working to your glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.